sermon number 562, Those Eternal Temptations, preached in the First Presbyterian Church of Bakerstown on Sunday, February 7, 1971. The text is taken from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Those of you who read Presbyterian Life, that publication of our denomination that is sent to the families of this church by the session of the church, I know that you are acquainted with the term cuckoo. And for those of you who are not, those particular letters stand for consultation on church union. For almost ten years now, our denomination, the United Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, has been in conversation with eight other denominations, talking about a possible formation of a brand new church consisting of all nine present bodies. Now there appears before the judicatories, the highest judicatories and the lowest of all these denominations, a proposed plan for union. That is what COCU is, Consultation on Church Union. Some people who have been studying this and following it for a few years have already made up their opinion whether or not they are for or against church union. Others, I'm afraid, are not the least bit interested in finding out whether or not they are. Therefore, it is the guidance of the session of this church which is planning for every member and friend of this congregation to have the opportunity to study, to understand the proposed plan of union which has been passed down to our church, which we are to make a decision upon, any changes that we might have in this plan of union must be in our General Assembly headquarters by June 15, 1972. And though the vote for the union will probably not take place for two or three years, it is still necessary that all of us know what it is that we are talking about when we are thinking about church union. Therefore, on three Sunday nights during Lent of this year, alternating Sunday nights beginning February 28th, the second will be held on March 14th, and the last on March 28th, in the homes of members of our parish, there will be opportunities for all of you to learn of this plan of union in meetings that will be held on those Sunday nights from 7.30 until 9 p.m. Mr. Bruder began working with elders of our churches, of our church this morning. They are in deep study of trying to understand this lengthy plan. They will serve as your conveners 
We are hoping that these groups will meet in the homes of the parish. They will consist of perhaps 10, 12 people. Each one of them will be a time for study, a time of just asking questions, and a time of trying to understand what all this plan has to say. I personally am concerned many people at Bakerstown are not the least bit interested as to what happens, that is, at this stage of the game. Oh, three or four years from now, you'll hear many of us yelling as to why we didn't know, why it was that something got through, or why was not something else included. Therefore, we are starting very early in the game and trying to get you people to become informed. My personal feeling is that this has the potential and the power to be revealed eventually in history, to be as great an event in the Christian Church as the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. There's a lot here. It's going to take a lot of hard work. But I am expecting the members of this congregation to respond. And the way you do that is by filling out one of these cards. You can get them today following worship. There will be elders stationed at every exit to the church. Please do not take one if you're not interested, but if you are, please take it out. You can fill it out today if you are prepared to answer. If not, please take it home and talk it over. Mail it back to the church. Bring it next Sunday. All reservations, or at least all those making application to be a part of a parish life home study group on this COCU subject, all of these must be in by February 21st. Following that time, we in the church office will make assignment. You will be notified where it is to, or to which home you are to attend the first of the three meetings, and then we hope on the night of the 28th we will have members of our church scattered throughout the entire parish in homes where you will be studying, asking questions, and having an opportunity to learn about this plan which is before us. Enough said. You'll be hearing more about this. I expect your response. Matthew, the third chapter, or the fourth chapter, beginning at the first verse. Then the Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted of the devil. And spending forty days and nights without food, Jesus was hungry. The devil came to him and said, If you are God's Son, Order these stones to turn into bread. Jesus answered, The scripture says man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that God speaks. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, set him on the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are God's son, throw yourself down to the ground. For the scripture says God will give orders to his angels about you. They will hold you up with your their hands, so that you will not even hurt your feet on the stones. Jesus answered, but the scriptures also 
say, You must not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all of their greatness. And this I will give you, said the devil, if you kneel down and worship me. Then Jesus answered, Go away, Satan. The scripture says, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So the devil left him, and angels came and helped Jesus. You know, every time I either read or hear that portion of scripture, I cannot help wondering why Jesus revealed such a personal and private experience. You know, he didn't have to tell us about his temptation. You know, and there was no one else around to, to tell on him. This could have been one of those little incidents that he could have let go by because there was no one else around, no biographer to, to record what was said and what was done. But for some reason or another, Jesus wished to reveal this very intimate, this very private, this very personal experience that he had with temptation. And the only reason that I can figure he wanted to reveal such an incident was that he must have felt that there was something in this happening that would be beneficial to his disciples. In other words, he felt if he told people about the temptation that he experienced, perhaps he might be helping those of us who at that time were yet unborn to face this eternal problem of being tempted. Jesus knew that all disciples were vulnerable to temptation. He knew that when first man was created, he was tempted. And the last man to be born, he will be tempted. And everybody in between cannot escape temptation. So he told the story, and it is recorded here in Matthew's Gospel with the hope that what happened to Jesus may help to teach us about temptation and the way it comes to us and what we can do when it does come. So therefore, look with me, if you will, this morning at these few verses that tell us about this experience that Jesus had with the tempter. And I think the first thing that you can see is that though temptation comes to everyone, it is recognized only by those who know who they are. If you do not know who you are, Temptation will come, but you won't recognize it as such. It will appear as privilege, license, permissiveness, free will, do your own thing. It will come in avenues like these, but you'll not be able to recognize it for its potential power, for its tempting enticement. You see, Jesus really never experienced temptation, according to the historical record, until he knew who he was. 
To get this idea, we, we have to go back and read those preceding verses that appeared in the text prior to those words that were heard in your reading this the, that heard, you were heard in your hearing this morning. We go back to the last part of the third chapter in those concluding verses, and we see Jesus down there in the muddy waters of the Jordan River, and he is being baptized, immersed by John the baptizer. And when Jesus emerges from those waters and stands on the shore, we we are told that the heavens literally opened, and that there was a dove there descending almost on Jesus's head, and a voice came from heaven saying, "This." is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now theologians have been arguing for hundreds of years as to whether or not Jesus knew prior to this time whether or not he was the Messiah. I'm not here to debate that particular question, but this much I do know whether or not Jesus knew it before this day we definitely know that at the time of his baptism he knew who he was, the Son of God, because the voice told him from heaven. He knew that he had certain unique powers. He knew that he had a certain relationship with God that was powerful. He knew that he was an individual sent to this earth with a mission. He knew who he was. And then that's when he was tempted. We don't have any recollection of his being tempted prior to this. But when he saw himself as the Son of God, temptation soon came close behind. And he recognized the tempter. You see, likewise, ladies and gentlemen, we will never recognize the tempter or the temptation if we do not know who we are. If we've never stopped to think that we are unique individually in the sight of God. Though we have limitations, we also have blessings and power. There's nobody else in the world like me. Maybe some people think that's good, but God is especially pleased with individuality. After all, he created us as he has. I am important. And so are each one of you. We are children of God. But an individual who has never stopped to think and to realize that in God's sight he is important, he is beautiful, he, he is necessary, and that he is a child of God. He really has no respect for self. And if he has no respect for self, he just can't identify temptation when it comes. Oh, it will come! But he won't be able to recognize it because it's only the individual who knows that he is a child of God that is able to recognize Temptation. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, if you still have that feeling which comes over you when you see something before you, and you feel that you are being tempted, and, and what out there looks beautiful is really potentious, 
potentially powerful for devastation. If you still feel that, you see, whether you yield or not, there's still hope for you because it at least means that you have recognized the fact that you are important to God and that your life is not worthless, useless, and just merely a blob of protoplasm. That you are a son of God and that you must walk carefully in this your inheritance. That's the first thing we learn about temptation. It is recognized only by those who know who they are. And secondly, I think we can see in this particular incident that most of the times we are tempted not through our weaknesses, as many of us think, but through our strengths. You will be tempted not where you are weak, but where you are strong. This is how Jesus found temptation. Yes, he was weak. He'd been in the wilderness 40 days. That's two days less than what? Six weeks. No food. No water. He was weak, but the tempter didn't tempt him in that weakness. Though he was weak in body, he was tempted through his power. The tempter said, if you are the Son of God, in other words, if you have this power, turn those little stones into loaves of bread. You know, Jesus had that power. Oh, yes. He was given by God and from his Father certain powers. And we know the first miracle that he performed was at a, a wedding reception in Canaan, and, and, and he took water and he turned it into wine. Well, if he did that, he, he was capable of taking little bits of stone and making them into loaves of bread. But Jesus did not yield to that temptation. Why? Because he refused to be selfish with the gifts, with the power that God had given to him. He was tempted with this power, tempted to use it selfishly for his own end. But he said no. He was tempted in another power. He had a, a power that came from a closeness between himself and God. He, he called God the most beautiful name perhaps in all of the world, Father. They were close. And this meant a powerful relationship existed between the two of them. And the tempter tried to get Jesus to use that relationship which was built in love to use it sensationally, cheaply. He tried to get Jesus to use his power to entice God to do something that maybe God did not want to do. He tried to get Jesus to use his power to move the hand of God. And Jesus refused to fall to such a sensationalism of trying to get God to do a cheap thing just to make him look good. To use God for his own end. To become sensational with those things of religion. Just to make somebody sit up for a few moments and take notice. Jesus refused to be sensational 
for the sake of dramatics only in his relationship with God. And then Jesus, you know, had the power of a great plan. He knew who he was, the Son of God, and he came into this world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And Jesus was on a mission to save the world. But the temptation came to compromise his dream, to not be so idealistic, to be satisfied with half the loaf. But Jesus refused to compromise. He refused to be tempted in such a way. And he went out and he won the world and fulfilled the destiny for which he was created and found the dream. So he found it on a cross. Nevertheless, he did not yield to the temptation of compromising with the dream that he had that had come from God. You see, all of this points out the fact that Jesus was tempted in his power, in his strengths. And ladies and gentlemen, that's where our temptation is going to come. God has given to each one of us power, power that can, in some areas, equal the power that Jesus Christ himself had while he walked on the face of the earth in the form of man. You're powerful. Together we have so much power that we can do things that we've not even dreamed of doing. God has given us a unique sense of, of what can be done. And we're going to be tempted from time to time to use that power that we have selfishly, to keep it for our own, constantly whether it be that we have great power to use words persuasively, whether we have great power to make money, whether we have great power to make love and have strong physical drives. In this power, we're going to constantly find temptation to use that power selfishly. Also, some of us have a very close relationship with God. We're close to the Father who is in heaven, and there are going to be times in this cockeyed world when people are looking for all sorts of sensations and new thrills and want to take bigger trips, that we're going to try and make God look cheap by yielding to the temptation of wanting to be sensational just to try and pry prove that God is alive. That temptation's coming to the church all the time. It is coming to people who are trying to serve God to perhaps make this thing a little more sensational. That perhaps can be a real temptation. And of course there are always, always temptations to compromise our message. We're here to go out into all the world and make disciples of all people, teaching them and baptizing them in the name of Jesus Christ. Not just into this community, but the whole wide world. That there will be temptations all the time coming, trying to get us to compromise with that dream. Be satisfied just with doing a little bit. 
That's one of the things that haunts me the most in being a minister of this great church. Because to whom much has been given, much will be required. And this is a great, potentially powerful congregation. And it's almost frightening when you realize that we are constantly going to be tempted to compromise with the destiny for which we've been created. We're tempted always through our powers, you see, never through our weaknesses. The third thing that comes out of this story is that even though we are tempted, and no one is exempt from temptation, neither does any one of us have to stand before temptation helplessly. Remember what this story is. Remember who it is about. It's about a man, Jesus Christ, who faced temptation of spirit, of body, of plans, and of hopes, but who did not tempt, who did not yield to that temptation, and who remained strong and walked away and beyond that temptation victoriously. How did he do it? Some of you say, well, he, uh, the angels came and helped him. No, there's no mention of angels here until after the temptation was over. Well, he was stronger than, than we are. I'm not sure how strong even the strongest man of the world is six, without eating for six weeks or having anything to drink. He had help. Yes, he did have help. The same help and the same power that is available to, to us, the scriptures. Jesus was able to overcome temptation because he knew the scripture. He, he repeated from memory some passages from Deuteronomy. But, but you see, he knew scripture and just through his memory. He had not just memorized scripture in the Sabbath synagogue schools so that he could win awards or, or, or quote nice little ditties at appropriate times. He knew the scriptures from experience and from understanding. He knew the whole world word of God and he was able to call upon that because he had an understanding of life that was written by God himself. See, that's one of the reasons some of us are working pretty hard in the Bethel series around here is it's not just to help you people to have some knowledge of the Bible, to be able to answer these questions that appear in all sorts of social games and parlor games and, and, and all sorts of interesting topics for discussion. It is to give you an understanding of life that has been revealed through the Word of God, is found through the patriarchs, through the, through the judges, through the kings, through the prophets, and through the Word made flesh himself, Jesus Christ. And when you understand the word of God, just not able to mouth it from memory, but when you understand it, then you see you have power to overcome temptation. And the fourth thing that we learn is that when you overcome temptation, something happens to you in the area of the feelings. The way the scripture says it was that after the angels came and ministered unto Jesus. You see, something happens to us 
There's a feeling that comes over us when we are able to withstand temptation. And it's not a feeling of personal congratulation or of, of patting oneself on the back. It's a feeling that you have done what you were supposed to do. You have become a little bit more of a human being. That you were not led just by your passions or by your powers, but you've been able to control with the Word of God your humanity. You see, I don't know where you believe the temptation comes from. There are some who, who say that it is sent by a personal individual who wears red clothes, red suits, has pointed ears and a long tail, and carries a, a red stick, and Flip Wilson and some other people believe in him. But then there are others who say, no, the evil is personal because it comes out of my heart and from my sin and my wanting to play God. Not being content with my humanity, I want to become like the Creator. And this is evil and it causes temptation in my life. But where it comes from, perhaps is really not of any importance on this day when we're discussing temptation. The important point is it comes, and when it comes, it comes as an invitation or an enticement to live less of a human being than God created you and expects you to be. You see, when you yield to temptation, it doesn't hurt God, and God doesn't give up on us when we yield to the temptation. When we yield to temptation, we give up on ourselves, and it shows that we are content to live 